I mean, there's a lot of action. I mean, is there a lot of action? <laughs> no. There's not even a lot of words. <laughs> Hello, hello, hello. hello. Ooh, Ooh, spooky. Ooh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Welcome to the fourth annual Spooktober. We're doing a little indie, indie uh, South by Southwest mm. independent film <laughs> festival. Yes, in case you missed uh, our announcement in last week's episode, for Spooktober, we will be doing all independently produced and made horror films. The strike era no, continues. No, please. No, please. Today, we are covering <laughs> one of the most iconic mm-hmm. horror films, one of the OG, I guess you could call it a slasher film, but it's yeah. honestly just like such... There's so many things that happen that have now been translated to new horror movies mm-hmm. um, and set the stage for a lot of devices. So do you want to tell the people what we're doing, Christina? Yeah. Today we are doing the 1978 John Carpenter classic, Halloween. Yeah, this film, I mean... There's such a different vibe to older horror films. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Halloween, Scream, Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm-hmm. is a, one of the best horror movies I've ever seen. And it's just like, it gets so old and creepy. Like, the hills have eyes. Like, I, I don't know. There's something about the graininess and mm-hmm. like the very raw and sometimes obviously fake nature of it that just adds to the horror film quality yeah this movie really builds tension like no other i mean we'll talk about Mm -hmm. it throughout but it's a 90 minute movie and the first Uh, kill i know love a 90 minute movie mm -hmm. but the first kill doesn't happen until about 50 minutes in and so once like that ball gets rolling then the kills happen like pretty quickly after that but yeah, I think the way that this movie is paced and the way that it builds is, like, brilliant. It's It keeps you on the edge of your seat the whole time. Oh, definitely. So before we get too far into it, should we talk numbers? So as we mentioned, Indie Horror Film Month, the budget for this film was $300,000. Yeah. Like, you can't even get a college education for $300,000. Yeah, and in this economy? Psh. yeah. Good luck. So, <laughs> a good luck without a scholarship. Okay. <laughs> but they made 70 million in the box office. And mm. that's just this film. Like, this is a franchise. So, they've gone on to make a ton of money. This is, I guess, I don't know which one is the most successful. I would assume, ratio wise, this is the most monetarily successful. Mm. But I would say, like, the. Ones that are being released now, I am, like, curious how they were received. Yeah. But the ones that came out closer to the original were probably received better. I I haven't seen the new ones, but I'm pretty sure they got, like, good reviews. Did they? From what I recall, I remember a lot of people talking about them and saying that they were really good. 
There's so many. Uh, yeah, I've only seen a handful of them. I believe it was actually in 2020 when we did our first Spooktober that, or maybe it was in 2021. I can't remember. But I was like, I've never seen any of the Halloween movies. I'm going to watch them all. Whoa. And so I started watching them. I think I watched like four of them because I didn't want to watch the ones without Jamie Lee Curtis in it. Because I was like, that's a different storyline. Like, that's a different thing. I'm trying to stick to like Mm -hmm. canon only. So I think I watched like three, maybe four of them. But then I hadn't seen like the reboot that they did. And I was kind of like curious how they were like continuing to make more movies because obviously one of the main like shticks of Michael Myers is that like he can't be killed. Right. But in one of the movies, he literally gets decapitated and I'm like, okay, so he's not human. What's the limit? Like, (laughs) like how, how do you come back from that? Something I liked about this movie was that Obviously, he gets he gets shot, he gets stabbed, mm. but we never see the wounds up close. So it's almost like, did they get him? Like, yeah. is it is he wearing a vest? Is he just totally indestructible? Mm-hmm. Like, but it it doesn't. I feel like decapitation is too far because you can yeah. see the head come off, and and it's like, okay, well, like I can see your spinal cord. If I can see your spinal cord. Yeah, the tension is broken. Yeah, there's no coming back from that one. But I'm like, you could heal from a gunshot wound or Mm -hmm. getting caught in a fire or, you know, any of the myriad of things that happened to him. But yeah, decapitation is where it takes it one step too far, which I guess is why the newer ones are considered a reboot rather than like a continuation. Okay. Would be my guess. But... Mm -hmm. In any case, it was very fun to like revisit this one because I hadn't watched it in a couple years and I liked it just as much as I did the first time I watched it. Nice. So let's get some fun facts going in the chat. Uh, the way that this this movie was conceived was uh, after viewing John Carpenter's movie Assault on Precinct 13 from 1976 at the Milan Film Festival, independent film producer Erwin Yablens, I believe is how it's pronounced, um, actually sought out John Carpenter to direct a film about a psychotic killer that stalked babysitters. Yes, and Carpenter agreed to direct the film, but he wanted full creative control. That was his one request, and he was actually paid $10,000 for his work, and to be clear, he directed it, he wrote the film, he scored the film, Mm -hmm. and he was like, yeah, (laughs) $10,000, and he and his then-girlfriend, Deborah Hill, began drafting the story of Halloween and it took them about 10 days to write the screenplay. And I can only imagine, I mean, there's a lot of action. I mean, is there a lot of action? (laughs) No. There's not even a lot of words. (laughs) Yeah. But it's clever. Like it's, it's really well paced for sure. Yeah. A lot of this movie is actually just stalking. Like there's a lot of stalking that happens in this movie So the dialogue is a bit more sparse. And like we said, the killings don't happen until very far into the movie. They're pretty concentrated when they do happen. Um, But I love that there's so much like breathing room and space in this movie. 
mm-hmm. for these like quiet stalking moments because that is what like is more scary than any of the actual deaths when they happen. Yeah, definitely. I love a slow burn, mm-hmm. like setting the stage. Uh, yeah. So when Deborah Hill and John Carpenter were writing this screenplay together, they actually drew on some of their own experiences. So uh, Deborah Hill was actually a babysitter when she was a teenager. So she actually wrote most of the uh, dialogue between the female characters, whereas John Carpenter drafted uh, Dr. Loomis's speeches on the soullessness of Michael Myers. Someone needs therapy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Something really interesting about Michael Myers is that John Carpenter's goal for the character was that the audience should never be able to relate to him. And I'm like, dear God, I hope so. Mm -hmm. But I had also read about the mask that they chose. It was supposed to be, or initially it was like a Captain Kirk mask. And then they took off his sideburns and eyebrows and did like the bluish white color on the mask and enlarge the eye holes. And it's just supposed to look totally like, you know, featureless and um, emotionless Mm -hmm. in order to be just like this totally unhuman mask. And I think that really worked for the character and the, the relatability or anti-relatability. Yeah. Like he has the, the physiological shape of a human, but nothing Mm -hmm. about him feels human at all. Yeah. And I do think that's also very much the 70s where whereas now it's not common to have a character who's completely soulless. It's like, Mm -hmm. let's dig deeper. Like, oh, there was childhood trauma or there's a cause for it. But I find this film really enticing because there's like no clear causation. No. They don't even really, at least in this movie, they don't really go into depth about the backstory of him and his family. So it's just a very, like, yeah, this guy is evil, like pure evil. Yeah, they they never do. They never are like, oh, he had this thing happen and that's why. No, he's just like literally evil incarnate Mm -hmm. and only has killing on his mind. Like that's... That's all there is to it, which, yeah, is very different from what you see in most horror movies. I feel like now there's often like a psychological element to a lot of the killers or villains that we see. But it's it's much scarier, I think, that he literally has no justification or like Mm -hmm. reasoning behind what he does. He just does it. Yeah. So they shot this movie over a 20 day period. It was in the spring of 1978, and then the movie was released in October that same year. So that's, like, very quick turnaround. And because they shot it in the spring, they did have some, you know, issues on the the set design, the production elements. They had to, like, have dozens of fake leaves that were, like, painted by the production designer that they could, like, reuse in different scenes because, again shoestring budget so Mm -hmm. not a lot to work with you'll also see throughout the movie that like the trees on the street are green they are not you know true autumnal colors and john carpenter wanted to like somehow change the trees but of course budget did not allow for this so that's why there's just a lot of green trees but i don't think it really like affects my movie watching personally that the no. trees are not red and, and yellow and orange, but 
Yeah, that's showbiz, baby. Mm-hmm. There are a ton of movies that have a an incongruent season. Yeah. And I guess maybe now it's easier to do different things, especially with, like, CGI. But, yeah, uh, yeah there's, like, a ton of little slip-ups in other movies, too, mm-hmm. where you can see that. And the last fun fact is that, like, your girl, Jamie Lee Curtis, she was working on a budget, okay? Mm-hmm. She bought all of her costumes at JCPenney for under $100. And I'm like, if I could give just... I want to go back in time for like 10 minutes and mm-hmm. steal clothes from a JCPenney's. <laughs> Absolutely. She has some fits. Yeah. She's like looking so cute. It's so funny because you could see someone walking around New York like that today and it would be mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I love your outfit. Yeah. Like I'm pretty sure the outfit that she wears for the majority of like the Halloween night scene where yeah. she has like that white button down and those like high-waisted flare jeans i'm like i'm sure that outfit is on my pinterest board somewhere like exactly it's a classic a timeless classic well before we dive into it we just want to remind you about our patreon Mm -hmm. we are doing another spooktober classic over there coming out next week so stay tuned if you are interested in joining our patreon it's five dollars a month we have a new bonus episode every month that is picked and voted for by the patrons you also get to join our discord you'll be on our close friends on instagram there's tons of cool perks so if you're interested uh feel free to check it out and i guess with that being said should we drive i don't know (laughs) Stab right into it. Should we slowly walk across the street right into it? Yeah. (laughs) So the film opens with the absolutely iconic musical stylings of John Carpenter. We see a floating jack-o'-lantern glowing as the open credits you know, roll. And as they roll, we are slowly zooming in on this jack-o'-lantern. And I just had to call out that it does say introducing Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie. Insane. (laughs) It's so insane. Yeah. This is her first movie. She had done some TV before, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, her first foray into film. And of course it is very fitting that she started her career in horror as her mother is Janet Lee, who of course was in Psycho, absolutely iconic. So the legacy continues. Then we go to Haddonfield, Illinois. It is Halloween night, 1963. And we're in a POV shot. We watch through Michael Myers' eyes as he heads toward a house where through the front door window, we see a couple making out. And then he travels around the side of the house We see the couple making out on the couch and the boy asks if they're alone and the girl says, Michael's around here somewhere. Mm. Mm. So the couple goes upstairs to fool around and the camera pans up to show the bedroom light turning off. Michael goes around into the backyard and enters the house through the back door. Then he goes into the kitchen and turns on the light and we see him grab this huge knife from the drawer. Then he hides in the doorway as we see the boy who was making out with his sister 
put on his shirt and leave to go home. And Michael goes up the stairs and puts on a clown mask. Then he goes into his sister's bedroom to see clothes strewn about and he watches his sister brush her hair. She's topless. Okay, so she hasn't even gotten dressed from this foray. Mm. And just sitting in front of the vanity, brushing her hair. I love to just sit topless at my vanity and, you know, brush my hair. (laughs) And she turns around and she's like, Michael, what are you doing? And he brutally stabs her and leaves her body on the floor, leaves the house through the front door. Mm -hmm. Just then his parents arrive home and they take his mask off. And they're like, Michael. And he's just standing there with the bloody knife. And they're standing there. And he's only six years old. Yeah. It's a very, very chilling opening to the movie. Definitely. Especially with the point of view perspective. Mm -hmm. I also found it interesting because throughout the movie, it tends to be people... Well, I guess not everyone, but I did find it interesting that he took this opportunity when his sister had just like presumably had sex Mm -hmm. to kill her because it does feel very like psychological, like, yeah, uh, I guess someone who knows more about psychology could say, but like, I'm just getting vibes of like, I wish I was having sex with my sister or like some sort of attention need. Like I'll never be able to have that relationship. Like, I don't know. There's something going on there. Yeah, no, there's definitely, um, there's definitely a link between uh, Michael committing murder and also like sex being a part of it. Mm -hmm. And this is like a pretty common thing in like a pretty commonly used device in most horror movies where like oh yeah if characters have sex like most likely they're going to be killed um that's just like a very common thing yeah, like the virgins see. always last one left yeah exactly um and like they they reference this in scream as well where it's like oh like she showed her tits so like now she's gonna die like if you have sex you're gonna die it's one of the cardinal rules of horror movies um but we obviously see this happen later on with some of our other characters and i think it also goes to the fact that when people are naked, they're just, like, inherently more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So then it makes, like, the murder that's happening, happening like, that much scarier or, I don't know, it it creates a bigger impact because, like, somebody is in such a vulnerable state. Right. They're letting their guard down. Mm -hmm. Sex is murder. (laughs) If you have sex, you will die, apparently. (laughs) Um but it is such an interesting way that they, they've they opened the movie with this, especially because you don't initially get the reveal that, like, this is a child. Yeah. Until you see how small his hand is when he goes to, like, grab that knife. But even mm-hmm. then, like, it's kind of distorted where you're like, maybe this is just, like, a kind of distorted POV. So when it finally leaves uh, – when the camera finally leaves his POV and we get, like, a regular wide shot and we see just how young this child is holding this bloody knife – extremely chilling so we then fast forward to smith's grove illinois it is october 30th 1978 
Inside a car, we have nurse Marion Chambers and psychiatrist Dr. Samuel Loomis. They are driving through a rainstorm to Smith's Grove Sanitarium. And when I tell you Smith's Grove is very hard to say, it's very hard to say. So, (laughs) (laughs) Believe me. Yeah. Loomis asks Nurse Marion Chambers if she's ever done anything like this before, but she's only ever been to minimum security facilities before. And Loomis tells her that the patient they're going to see hasn't spoken a word in 15 years and tells her not to underestimate it. And she's like, um, shouldn't we refer to it as him? Like, this is a patient we're talking about? Your compassion's overwhelming, doctor. And he just kind of ignores her and advises her on what medication to give him when they take him in front of the judge. He wants this patient to be so doped up that he can barely even stay conscious. Yeah. So so Marion is confused and asks why they're taking this trip if he doesn't even want this patient to get out of the sanitarium. And Loomis says, because it's the law. So they arrive at the sanitarium and we see these patients just like wandering around the grounds in their gowns like something is not right it's very eerie so they pull up to the main gate and loomis gets out of the car which i would never do if i saw i think he tells her he's like go to the main gate yeah like he knows something is amiss yeah and in my head though i'm like shouldn't you just call someone oh they don't be cell phone yeah it's the 70s damn it But no, I would not be getting out of the car. No, no, no. I say turn around. I'd be like, I was never here. I saw nothing. What could you do? Maybe that makes me irresponsible, but I also don't want to die. So he gets out of the car. Meanwhile, a patient who is Michael, it's Michael Myers, Mm -hmm. literally climbs on the roof of the car. Horrifying. Marion opens the window for some reason, and he just, like, reaches inside and grabs her. So she kind of, like, loses control of the car and ends up, like, I think she, like, sort of veers off the road a bit. And then she, you know, climbs over to the passenger side because it's the 70s and it's just, like, one long bench in that front row. (laughs) It's probably not even seatbelts. No, definitely not. And Michael breaks the window behind her and tries to grab her so she manages to get out of the car and michael climbs inside and drives away oh my goodness yeah cut to haddonfield we're back it's october 31st 1978 so the next day and we see a classic white suburban home Lori Strode is heading out the door for school with her books, of course. What a nerd. And her dad reminds her to drop off a key at the Myers place. And there's like a little clue that he owns a realty business because on the car it says mm-hmm. like Strode Realty or something like that. So um, she's like, yeah, I won't forget. He's like, people are coming to look at the house today. And... uh it's happening. So Lori heads to school. She actually crosses the street and runs into Tommy Doyle, a kid who she babysits, and she'll be babysitting him tonight. And he's just like a cute little kid. They yeah. talk about their plans. 
And then they stop at the Myers house so that she can leave the key under the mat. But Tommy is freaked out. He's like, do not go over there. You're not supposed to. And he's like, and Lori's like, I am. I have this key. I need to leave it here. We see from inside the house, again, I, I guess this one isn't POV, but it feels it's like, like a it dirty shot over his shoulder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then we see his shoulder and just like, <sighs> Ugh, the breathing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Tommy and Lori had their separate ways, and Lori is none the wiser that Michael is standing on the sidewalk watching her walk away. Was there like a haunted, like a, a house in your neighborhood that people were like, oh my God, that house is haunted? Well, do you know the show, not the show, the movie A Haunting in Connecticut? I know the title. I'm not like familiar with the movie itself, but I know of mm-hmm. it. So I grew up like close to where that house is. Like I've passed mm. by it. So people were like, that's the house that A Haunting in Connecticut is based off of. Oh my God. So that was creepy. And then there was, um, there is a stone I, I don't know if the whole house is stone but it's like this weird big house that's like across the street from our high school and people would be like a witch lives there <gasps> a witch a witch <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, was there a place in Singapore I feel like that's scarier is there a haunted place in Singapore um yeah I mean, there aren't really, like, houses like that, but there's definitely mm-hmm. this one – oh, my gosh, I haven't thought about this place in years. There's this one, like, kind of, like, sculpture garden that's super creepy. Let me pull it Ooh. up. Yeah, the Ha Par Villa. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how to describe it, but it has all of these, like, sculptures and stuff, and some of them are, like, various folk tales – and it kind of has like a Tim Burton-y, like Dolly kind of surreal Whoa. element to it. But yeah, there's definitely an eerie energy to it. And I feel like people were always like, oh yeah, there's ghosts and like spirits there. And then there's mm-hmm. also a hotel that um, people used to say was haunted. I can't find the name the name of it, but yeah, there was like a hotel that people always said was haunted. But there's like a couple mm-hmm. other places that people would talk about being haunted, but they weren't really like houses like this. Yeah, it's very suburban. So we go back to Loomis. He meets with like the head of the sanitarium who literally doesn't take any responsibility for Michael escaping. He's like, oh, he was your patient. You should have told mm-hmm. us how dangerous he was. And I'm like, and he's like, I did. Yeah. Also, like. You're the ones who are with him all day, every day. Did you not notice? You have his files. Like, you know what he did. I don't know. But Loomis is like, I literally told you, but nobody listened to me. And he's like, you need to get back on that phone and tell the cops that he escaped and where he's going. But the sanitarium man is like, oh, Haddonfield is 100 miles from here. He can't even drive. And Loomis is like, well, he drove pretty fine just last night. So figure it out. And then Loomis... Mm -hmm drives off himself at school Lori is in English class and the teacher's talking about a character being destined to their own fate and she talks about like fate um in the perspective of like one writer versus another one and one is like your fate is predetermined the other one is like you decide your own fate whatever a little allusion to the Mm -hmm. plot 
And Laurie looks out the window when she notices across the street a man in a mask just standing there behind a car looking in, peering in to the classroom. Nope. <laughs> Not great. Yeah. And the teacher asks Laurie a question and she's like, oh, um, yeah. And then answers. She knows the answer, which good for you, girl. Yeah, she's a smart cookie, that one. Mm-hmm. And when she looks back out, the car and the man are gone. Yeah, that would freak me the fuck out if I saw that. She's very calm about mm-hmm. it, though. <laughs> I'm like, I need one other person to see this. Yeah. So we then go to Tommy. So after school, we see some kids, some bullies making fun of him. And they tell him that the Ah. boogeyman is going to get him. And they also trip him. So he falls on like the giant pumpkin that he was carrying. He was so excited. I know. He was so excited to carve this jack-o'-lantern with Lori. And now these stupid bullies have squashed his pumpkin. The bullies then run away, and one of them runs literally into the arms of Michael Myers, who is just standing there. Um, So that's horrifying. The child does run away, and Michael watches as Tommy walks through the schoolyard, and then we hear the infamous theme. Michael gets in his car, and he starts following Tommy as he walks home. I think they do a really good job of not, like, overusing close-ups of Michael's face. Like, for the most part, we only see him. Like, we see dirty shots. We see him from behind. We see his POV. But if we do see, like, his actual face, it's usually from afar. Like, we see in that shot where Laurie sees him across the street. Mm -hmm. So, I think that's – I think if we saw, like, too much up close, it would, like, not be as scary. Yeah. We also see his face – like one time mm-hmm. and it's a horrifying <laughs> absolutely horrifying yeah so we go back to loomis on his one man chase and he drives to haddonfield he stops at a payphone and calls the police to warn them that michael is coming if he isn't there already and they need to be prepared if not it's their funeral. And I'm like, what if what if we just did things the way they're supposed to be? Like we filed a missing persons report, said mm-hmm. this is a dangerous man. Because later on, Loomis is also like, we can't tell everyone. Like we're going to freak mm-hmm. them out. And I'm like, okay, but sometimes people should be aware. Yeah. Sometimes people should be aware. If there's a dangerous murderer on the loose... Kind of want to know about it. Right. Especially like in the 70s. There's no cell phones. People are just out and about walking the streets like they're like be home by dark. Yeah. Too much fate. Too too much is left up to fate. Mm -hmm. So Loomis then notices an abandoned auto shop truck with white sheets hanging from it. And he sees a matchbox on the ground for a local lounge And then he realizes this is the same matchbox that the nurse used to light her cigarette the other night. Mm. And there's also some other like items strewn about. He goes back to his car and then we pan to the side 
to see the driver is dead in a bush. He is naked and he was stabbed to death. And I'm like, Loomis, okay, some oversight. Yeah. I'm like, you're not a detective, sure, but you don't want to check the surrounding area just a little right. bit. <laughs> right. So we go back to Miss Lori Schrode after school. She's walking with her pal, Linda, and Linda's like, oh, my God, my schedule is so packed. I have cheerleading and the game and then also the dance tomorrow. She's and so silly. Yeah, she's just like, God, it's so hard being me. And Lori's like, womp, womp, I have nothing to do as per usual. <laughs> and Linda's like, yeah, that's your own fault, babes. <laughs> so... Their friend Annie then runs up to join them and tells them about how her boyfriend Paul got grounded so they can't hang out tonight while she's babysitting and she's super bummed about it. And that's when Lori realizes that she forgot her chemistry book at school. And as she kind of like looks back towards the direction of school, she notices that same car from earlier driving down the street like it drives very, very slowly, but then as soon mm -hmm. as the driver gets a look at the girls, it speeds up super fast. So Annie, who's you know a rambunctious Got the gal, balls on her. Mm -hmm. She's like, I don't, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, she also that's her character. <laughs> she also looks like significantly older than the other girls. Yeah. So like it was hard for me to suspend my disbelief that she's supposed to be like seven, six, seventeen, probably. Right. Um, but I think also the hairstyle really ages her. So she decides to yell out to this driver, and she yells, "Hey, jerk! Speeding kills!" And then Michael stops the car abruptly. Mm. And that's when I would be shitting my pants personally. Not even knowing that this was like a psycho murderer, but just like in general, road rage is not for me. So he lingers for a little bit before he slowly starts driving down the street again. And Lori tells Annie that someday she's going to get them all into big trouble. But then they, you know, go back to their previous conversation about how Annie and Lori are going to be babysitting like across the street from each other tonight. So maybe they can keep each other company. Mm-hmm. So as they walk down the sidewalk, Linda stops off at her house and Lori spots Michael standing near a hedge watching them. Absolutely not. Yeah. And he ducks out of view right before Annie can see him. And Lori's like, that's the guy who drove past us. So Annie, again, the machismo in her is like, let's go confront him. <laughs> but when she turns the corner... There's no one there. Oh, my God. And she teases Lori and says the guy wants to talk to her about taking her out tonight. And Lori rushes up and sees that he's not there. And Annie is like, oh, you scared another one away. So mean. <laughs> She's a pretty blunt girl. Yeah. They they definitely make her really obnoxious. So you're like, well, obviously she's getting killed. <laughs> right. So Annie says it's a shame she never goes out. She must have a fortune stashed away from all her babysitting. And Lori says that guys think she's too smart, but Annie says she's a wacko, seeing men behind bushes. 
And we don't really delve into it. Again, it's a tight 90 movie, mm-hmm. but like there's a lot of undertones of Lori, like being a shy gal, being yeah. a bookworm, not being able to ask a guy out or like date. Yeah, she's definitely in that like in between precipice stage between childhood and adulthood. And we often see her like looking at, you know, the children just out on the streets trick or treating. Um, and obviously she's not as. Uh, I guess like sexually active or experimental as her friends are like they have boyfriends, they're dating, they're, you know, doing whatever they're doing. And it's not that Laurie doesn't have those desires or feelings, but I think she's just like kind of afraid to really go into that territory. So it does feel kind of like she's, she's caught between childhood and adulthood. Yeah. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, It's so funny the thought of having like a 16 or 17 year old watch my kid. I just feel like now, especially because babysitting is such like and nannying and mm-hmm. stuff. It's kind of um, something I, especially in New York, feel like older people do. Yeah. Like people who are in their twenties and thirties, like you could be an au pair your whole life. Mm-hmm. So it is funny to me, the thought of hiring like a 16 or 17 year old to babysit. Like I never had a babysitter. Mm-hmm. So I never had like a, a super constant babysitter. I remember when um when we moved to Singapore, there was like one of the like one of the other teachers at my school, like one of like her daughter who was in high school, like she used to babysit us sometimes before she went off to college. I mean, it makes sense. It's just like you're putting your your child's whole life yeah. into the hands of a teen. Yeah. But I guess like once my brother was probably in like middle school, like later middle school. Then like we didn't really need a babysitter anymore. We were just allowed to be at home by ourselves. Yeah, same. Yeah. So Annie then says bye. She goes into her house and Lori walks home. She looks behind her shoulder for Michael, but only to run around and bump into another man, Annie's dad, who is also the sheriff. And Lori apologizes, but he's like, oh, it's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. Little do you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) honey, you got a big storm coming. Yeah. (laughs) So Lori is walking up to her house when she hears the sounds of, you know, children laughing. It's the kids trick-or-treating next door. And she says to herself, well, kiddo, I thought you outgrew superstition. She talks to herself like... Pretty frequently, actually, throughout this movie. She'll just have, like, little asides to herself. Oh, my gosh. Sometimes – I'm not even going to say this on air. God. Do you have some asides to yourself sometimes? No, but sometimes (laughs) Josh does a bit where Mm -hmm. he – like we're having a conversation, he looks to the side as if there's like a camera Like a flea bag moment. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And I'm just like, Josh, do not look away to camera. And he's like (laughs) – and making little faces at the imaginary audience. That's so funny. Oh my gosh, she's doing a little Jim Halpert like well. Literally. Literally. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. That's so good. So Lori goes into her room and she's going to like shut her window. She also has these like beautiful like linen-y curtains on her window. Oh, yeah. I was like, "Oh my god, so cottage core, so cute." So she's going to shut the window when she sees Michael, 
standing <gasps> in the neighbor's yard under the clothesline with all the billowy sheets. Mm-hmm. And then we like cut back to her and then we cut back to the yard and he's gone. He has vanished. So that's super creepy. Lori shuts her window and like recoils, kind of like ricocheting to the other side of the room. That's when the phone rings. So she picks up, but there's no one on the other end of the line. So she hangs up, but then the phone instantly rings again. Turns out it was Annie. She's like, why'd you hang up on me? And Lori's like, why didn't you say anything? She's like, I was chewing. I'm like, well, why did you call? Finish chewing. Finish chewing. (laughs) It makes me think about how, like, uh, Gen Z, when they start a TikTok, they'll be like, okay, so, and then they'll take a giant bite of food, and then, (laughs) and I'm like, just start the TikTok after you've taken your bite. I don't get why. I think it's, like, it's to, like, imply casualness. And the parasocial relationship starts now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's to imply nonchalance, um, but it's just annoying because I'm like, you're like, okay, so, and then they start and I'm like, nom, 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 nom. (laughs) Maybe I'm old. I don't know. Back in my day, we didn't talk and eat at the same time. And yet they're like, God, millennials, the millennial pause. I'm like, what about the Gen Z chew? Let's talk about that. (laughs) Let's talk about the oral fixation of Gen Z. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but before I get too off the rails, yeah, Annie was just chewing. <laughs> she tells Lori that her mom is lending her her car tonight, so she'll pick her up at 6.30. Lori says goodbye. She lays down on her bed, and she tells herself to calm down. She's being ridiculous, because obviously she's had multiple frights today. Mm-hmm. Later on, Lori leaves her house with a giant pumpkin for her and Tommy to carve tonight. Aww. She doesn't even know he smashed his. Yeah. So, so nice. And she sits on her street corner and watches the trick-or-treaters cross the street until Annie picks her up. And she gets in Annie's car. <laughs> she gets in Annie's car. Annie's like, here's a joint. Yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah. So this this moment for me is what really sealed her being like caught between the two worlds as she's like watching the children and then is like, here's some drugs. <laughs> so. Yeah. We then go to the cemetery. Loomis mm-hmm. has gone to the cemetery to see uh, the Myers family plot and the cemetery groundskeeper, I guess director i don't know what they're called if you like run a cemetery but he is leading loomis through and talks about how every town has a tragedy like this and he tells the story like a really harrowing story of a murderer in a neighboring town who i guess like killed his wife and children Mm -hmm. and that's when they get to judith meyer's grave to see that it has been dug up and the headstone is gone oh my god which is just horrific the cemetery groundskeeper thinks that it's just like kids playing pranks on halloween and i'm like what a fucked up prank that would be yeah but loomis knows that it's michael he came home Mm. we go back to the car with annie and laurie and annie asks laurie if she's still spooked but she says she wasn't but she does tell annie about the man she saw in the yard watching her And while they're driving, they are being followed 
buy another car. It's Michael. But this is never addressed in no. this moment. So they just keep driving and smoking until Annie notices her dad, the sheriff, and his car is parked outside of this hardware store. So she's like, hide the joint, hide the joint. And they drive up to say hello. Sheriff Brackett tells them that some kids probably just broke in. And she's like, wow, you're always blaming the kids. <laughs> she's, so, she's so rude. Yeah. And he's like, well, all they took was a Halloween mask, some rope and some knives. And they drive off and up walks Loomis to have a word with the sheriff. He tells them it's important. And as Loomis waits, Michael drives past him. The two ships passing, passing in the, the night. night. <laughs> Except one of them's a murderer. So <laughs> we go back to Annie's car, and Lori is worried that Sheriff Brackett could smell the weed on them, but Annie assures her that they're fine. She's like, my dad's face always looks like that. <laughs> Brutal. So... Lori asks Annie what she's wearing to the dance tomorrow, and Annie is like, oh, I didn't know you even thought about stuff like that. You know, you could probably ask somebody. Let's just, like, go up to someone and ask them to go to the dance with you. And Lori's like, oh, my God, I could never. I'm just a shy gal. I could never ask someone to the dance. Are you kidding me? And then um, I think Annie suggests, like, one boy that she could ask that would, like, definitely want to go with her. And Lori's like, no, I wouldn't want to go with him. Actually, I um, I would want to go with Ben Tramer, you know, if he's <gasps> interested. Ooh. And Annie's like, oh, my God, you have a crush? How sweet. Meanwhile, terror is behind them. Michael is following them <laughs> with his car. <laughs> so Annie drops Lori off at Tommy's house before she pulls into, you know, the driveway on the other side of the street. We see Michael get out of his car and watch Annie go inside. And we have a lot of like really, really wide shots in this movie. Um, so this one we see like actually a decent amount of the, you know, back of Michael's frame, as well as in the distance, we see Annie saying goodbye to like the parents that she's babysitting for on their way out for the night. And uh, Annie goes in to babysit Lindsay Wallace. Mm -hmm. At the Myers house, the sheriff and Loomis, they go in to investigate and they find a partially eaten dead dog in the living room. Ugh. Horrific. Yeah. Loomis says Michael must have gotten hungry, but the sheriff doesn't believe a man would do that. And it's like, the facts are here. Mm -hmm. This isn't old. Like, you know, yeah. this is fresh. I think he says something like he must have just left or something yeah. like that. And Loomis says this isn't a man they're dealing with. So they go upstairs to Judith's bedroom where she was killed when suddenly some trim from the roof breaks off and shatters the window next to them. And on instinct, Loomis pulls out a gun and he like shows the sheriff that he has a permit and he's like, oh, you must think I'm a horrible doctor. But Loomis then explains that he met Michael 15 years ago. And was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding of good or evil. He met a six-year-old child with an emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, 
From then on, he spent eight years trying to teach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up. So he broke him. Like Loomis is like, I cannot get through. Yeah, There's nothing there because he realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. And he tells the sheriff that Michael has been here once tonight and he thinks he'll likely come back. So he's going to wait for him. And the sheriff wants to put an Amber Alert out, like let everyone know, but Loomis is like, no, because then civilians will see him on every street corner. Just tell your men to keep their mouths shut and eyes open. And I'm like, this is a mistake. Yeah. I think this was needed to keep the plot going, but Mm -hmm. this isn't something you should do. Yeah, and I also don't think that like the local... Haddonfield PD is equipped to handle something of this nature. Right. Because the last time there was a murder in this town, it was this kid. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't I don't think that I don't think they're qualified for this one. No, they need to bring in backup. They they should not be having like Halloween night like everyone should be inside. Yeah. Also, we don't see any other police officers throughout the whole movie. So, like, I don't know what his men are doing, supposedly, but it's certainly not patrolling this neighborhood. Right. So Sheriff Brackett says, okay, I'm going to go patrol. I'll check back in an hour. So we go back to Lori, who is babysitting Tommy Doyle. She reads him King Arthur, but he's like, I don't like that book anymore. I have a new favorite. And he pulls out all these like superhero comics that he hides under the couch from his mom. And this felt like a kind of specific thing that I feel like must have been like a personal memory of Deborah Hills. Mm. Annie then calls to see how Lori's night is going and says she has some big news. But that's when the Wallace's dog comes into the kitchen. They have this big, beautiful German shepherd who starts barking because he hates (laughs) Your description is antithetical to how Annie views this dog. Yeah, no, she hates this dog and the dog hates her. Um, So she tells the girl, Lindsay, that she's babysitting to like get the dog out of the kitchen. Lindsay, however, is sitting on the couch engrossed in this horror movie that they were watching So the dog eventually stops barking and leaves, and Annie tells Lori the big news that she's going to be going to the homecoming dance with her crush, Ben, because she called him and told him all about Lori's crush, and Lori (sighs) is horrified, as I would be as well if somebody did that to me. (laughs) I would be like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. (laughs) But I I would have done it myself. Yeah. Yeah, I would have been excited if it was, like, something that I had done. But if my friend was like, right. by the way, I Christina has a huge crush on you, I would be right, mortified. Right. <laughs> so, meanwhile, Tommy is looking out the window, and that's when he sees <gasps> Michael standing outside the Wallace house, staring in the window. So he runs over to tell Lori that the boogeyman is outside, but when she goes to look... There's no one there. I do think it's funny how Michael is never, from the director's point of view, it feels, the director never makes him the boogeyman, but like in the child's eyes, he can't even fathom that this is a man. He's just like the boogeyman. Mm -hmm. There's just something so distinctly not human about him. And it's the Captain Kirk mask. (laughs) 
Exactly. <laughs> so we go into the Wallace house. Michael stands outside the Wallace house watching Annie, who has to hang up on Lori because she's got popcorn butter all over her outfit. And Annie ends up taking her clothes off and putting on one of Mr. Wallace's button downs. Then Michael smashes a plant outside the house, which catches Annie's attention. But she's like, I am a seasoned professional. I am not scared. And Michael is just standing outside when the dog spots him. And of course, the dog is a German shepherd. He's like protective. Mm -hmm. So he starts barking. And Annie is so annoyed. I think she even tells Lindsay to like go make the dog stop barking. Mm -hmm. But abruptly, the barking stops and it's replaced with sounds of like whimpering and then nothing at all. And I believe Annie says something like, oh, he must have found a friend. Yeah. But Michael has killed the dog. Yeah. I did read that they added this in because they wanted to really drive home that like Michael is evil and awful. And it's not really the killing of people that's going to drive that home, but the killing of an animal. <laughs> it's insane. Um, but I mean, that is like a thing. I know that like when people study the psychology of a lot of serial killers and stuff, a common thing is that in childhood, they'll either have in like instances of killing and torturing animals or right. instances of like weird stuff with feces, like a fascination with really? it. Really? Yeah. Those are like two kind of things that will sometimes pop up with uh, people Whoa. who end up uh, being serial killers. So anyways, we go back to Lori and Tommy. They're sitting on the couch. They're watching The Thing. But Tommy can't stop thinking about how the boogeyman is coming after him. Of course, like that's what his bullies threatened him with. But Lori tells him that Halloween is when people play tricks on each other and Richie was just trying to scare him. But Tommy insists that he saw the boogeyman outside, which he did. And Lori decides to humor him and she's like, okay, the boogeyman can only come out on Halloween night, right? And he's like, yes. She says, but I'm here. And I'm not going to let anything happen to you. So he makes her promise and she does promise. So they shake on it and then they go to carve the jacqueline and then they go to carve the jack-o'-lantern together. Sorry, I kind of went down a rabbit hole of Googling. Why do serial killers have an obsession with these? <laughs> yeah. So anyways... Annie decides to do her laundry because she spilled that butter all over herself. So she goes to the shed in the backyard where the washer and dryer are. And while she's getting detergent, Michael is standing outside the door. And Annie thinks it's her boyfriend, Paul, playing a prank on her. So she goes to the door and looks around, but no one's there. And she just goes back to doing her laundry unbothered when the door suddenly slams shut and locks from the outside. So Annie bangs on the door and calls out for Lindsay to come help her, but Lindsay is just too engrossed in the movie to notice, and the phone rings. She doesn't answer it, and Annie just keeps calling out for her while Michael watches from the window. Oh, my gosh. So finally Annie's like, okay, I'm, I'm 
got to get out. So she tries to open the window and crawl out of it. Lindsay finally answers the phone. It's Paul calling for Annie. So Lindsay goes outside to tell Annie that there's a call for her. And that's when she finally hears Annie yell and goes to open the laundry room door. And she's like, you've locked yourself in. And she's like, I know, pull my foot. And she like has to pull her back in to get her out of the window. Then Annie asks her to promise not to tell anyone about this. So immediately Lindsay goes back and tells him, hey, Annie got stuck in a window. Here she is. (laughs) So they talk about how his parents are gone and they can meet up. Meanwhile, Michael is standing in the doorway, watching Annie, stalking her, scoping her out. Yeah. This whole sequence is like really, um, really, really well done and very unsettling. We have a lot of like frame within a frame. For example, there's one shot where we see Annie through a window. Like we're outside the shed seeing her through the window. And then the window behind her, we see Michael outside of that Mm. one. And there's often times where sometimes you won't even necessarily notice that he's behind somebody until he moves. Like they'll have the actor move his head and then you'll be like, oh my God, he's right there. There's also like a lot of moments in this scene where we can see areas of like darkness or there's like there's a lot of space on either side of her and it keeps you guessing like is he going to pop up over there or is he going to pop up over yeah. there and then also having her like again going back to that idea of people just being more vulnerability when like having more vulnerability when they're naked like when we see her mm-hmm. trying to like stuff herself through the window and like all we see is like her underwear and she's just wearing this like one shirt so it like heightens everything even more that she's in like a very vulnerable position being like half in and out of this window we know there's someone stalking her and she's Mm -hmm. not wearing pants like Mm -hmm. it all kind of creates this perfect storm of of fear and anxiety yeah absolutely and do you think at some point Lindsay's going to get killed do you Mm -hmm. think at some point annie is going to get killed like you said you don't know where the killer is coming from he also it seems like purposefully um tries to get her spooked by mm-hmm. by slamming the door, locking her in, yeah. like being just in the vicinity. And there are so many moments where it could strike, but like, yeah, the tension just keeps building. Mm-hmm. And it's like, because we don't know much about Michael at all, it like keeps us on our toes because he could have like killed her multiple times at this point. Like oh, yeah. he's had many opportunities, but because it's so drawn out, like we don't know when he's actually finally going to strike that yeah. it just builds and builds so well. It's like when will the tension break? Mm-hmm. So we then go into the living room and Annie goes to get Lindsay because they're gonna go pick up Paul at his house, but Lindsay doesn't want to like go drive to this random dude's house obviously she's like seven she's like i want to stay and watch the movie so annie offers to take her next door to go watch tv with tommy and Lindsay agrees to that so they head across the street watched of course by michael and annie drops off Lindsay. she then goes to talk to Lori in the kitchen And Lori's like, hey, you need to call Ben back and tell him that I'm not going on this date. But Annie says no. Besides, like, he's out drinking with so-and-so tonight. He's not even going to check his phone until the morning. And I'm going to pick up Paul. But if you watch Lindsay tonight, then I'll consider calling him in the morning. 
to call off the date. And Lori takes the deal. So Annie goes over to her car in the Wallace's garage, but the door is locked and she forgot her keys. So she heads back into the house and gets them. She's like singing to herself as she gets her keys and fixes her hair. And she makes it back to the car, opens the door, like totally forgets that it was locked initially and just gets into the driver's seat when she notices the windshield is all fogged up, Mm -hmm. but from the outside. And then Michael sits up in the back seat and starts strangling her. And I think the choice to have him murder with his hands is very purposeful Mm -hmm. because it is like a testament to his strength. The person is so locked up, like there's no way to scream. Yeah. Um, It's very like cut and dry. And there's also... I feel like if you're doing out of defense, you're you're trying to strangle someone. It's like a lot of like, oh my God, this is like a crazy thing to do. Like, but because he's so emotionless, it's mm-hmm. just like this awful action. Yeah. The only like thing we really get from him is his breathing is heavier and he maybe like grunts a bit from the effort of strangling someone. But that's like the closest that we get to any response from him Mm -hmm. for what he's doing it's just like the physical act of doing it yeah yeah and annie struggles and tries to honk the horn to get someone's attention but michael ends up slitting her throat and she just like you can see the fear on her Mm -hmm. face as she lands on the horn yeah the i mean to really illustrate like just how like slow this buildup is from when he starts stalking them from when, like, she goes to pick up Lori to when he kills Annie is about 30 minutes. So it's just been, like, half an hour of build of him stalking and stalking and stalking until um, until he kills her, which is, mm. I would say, pretty unusual for a horror movie. I don't feel like there's usually this much of a build. Um, particularly in a slasher, which has multiple deaths in a a horror movie where there's really just one like main victim. That's kind of different. Whereas like, you know, this is, yeah, uh, definitely this is a multi-victim movie. So we cut back to the Doyle house where Tommy and Lindsay are watching TV and Tommy actually like sneaks off the couch to stand behind the curtain and like whisper Lindsay's name to scare her. But while he's doing this, he looks out the window and sees Michael carrying Annie's body from the garage into her house. So he screams that it's the boogeyman and Lori rushes over and she's like, cut it out. You're scaring Lindsay. You know, I'm going to send you to bed soon if you don't stop it. Like you're making stuff up. Tommy is very upset that nobody believes him. But Lindsay tells him that she believes him. So the kids go back to watching TV and Lori just goes back into the kitchen to continue carving the pumpkin. In the Myers house, Loomis is loitering around. He's waiting for Michael. I do wonder what his plan is. Like, is he just going to shoot him? I guess. Because I'm like, that's not legal. (laughs) Well, certainly. But it also feels like he doesn't have a plan. Yeah. He's just kind of like a watchdog. Mm -hmm. 
but there isn't, it just kind of feels like, <laughs> it just kind of feels like there's no one really stopping him. No. <laughs> Not so, at all. I'm going to, I'm going to rephrase what I said. Loomis, to be clear, is standing in the bushes, like yeah. <laughs> in, in the hedges, all, like on the side of the property and just waiting for Michael to come and some kids they're Tommy's bullies. So the the guys who like surround him, they're like, the boogeyman's going to come out tonight. Mm. They go up to the house and dare each other to go and knock on the door. And as one kid goes up to like knock on the door, Loomis puts on a fake voice and he's like, get away from the house, blah, blah, blah. And the sheriff then comes and sneaks up on Loomis and he's like, there's been no sign of Michael. I really have a feeling you're wrong about this. But Loomis is like, I know I'm right. I've watched him for 15 years in a room looking at a wall, but not seeing it, looking past it, looking at this night, inhumanly patient, waiting for some silent alarm to trigger him off. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. You can either ignore it or help me to stop it. And I love how Loomis the is drama. like, yeah, he's a drama queen. <laughs> and the sheriff says Haddonfield is just families and children all lined up along this street. You telling me they're lined up for slaughter? And I'm like, well, if you want to be like technical, he's really just targeting the teens. Mm-hmm. Um, I did think it was interesting that he never seems to be targeting the kids. Yeah. And I know that's that's a rule that a lot of horror movies follow is not murdering. I mean, I don't want to see it, so but much. I just feel like of course it's interesting. And in that adults either. I mean, there are some like the guy who's driving the truck, but it seems more of like he needed to do that to get to Haddonfield. What he really wants to do, it seems like, is recreate the murder of his sister. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the children kind of um, represent a bit of like a like a safety net or yeah. a safe haven. Like, you know, when the children are in the frame that like people aren't going to mm-hmm. get murdered. It's just kind of like an implicit feeling that you get. And this is something that I actually thought about in um, when I was watching the second Fear Street movie. Oh, interesting. Because that one, it takes place on like the camp, right? So most of the people that are murdered mm-hmm. are like the campers. And they don't show any of those murders um, in the whole movie, which, like, of course, I don't I don't want to see that. Like, nobody wants to see that. But they do show, like, the murders of the teenagers, the adults, um, but they never show uh, the children getting murdered, which I think is just, like, a really common rule that most horror movies follow. Yeah, it's interesting, especially, like, I don't want to be redundant, but because he's so amorphous and... Mm-hmm. non-human uh the desire to recreate the murder is just so it feels so like untethered and i don't know ephemeral like i don't know i don't know it's just like creepy it's eerie mm-hmm. so loomis applies to the sheriff he says they could be and the sheriff says he'll stay with him tonight just on the chance that he is right and if he is right Damn you for letting him go. 
It wasn't his fault that he escaped. He was already, I don't know, like, what happened at the asylum, dude? Yeah, it's that guy's. That's what I want to know. That guy's fault. That's for sure. So we then go to Linda and Bob. Uh, You haven't met Bob yet, but Linda we haven't seen in a hot minute. Bob is her boyfriend. Uh, They like to get a little hot and heavy. That is their reputation. So they pull up to the Wallace house in his classic 1970s van and you know they're just drinking some beers and she drinking and driving yep (laughs) (laughs) so she tells him the plan is for them to go inside to the wallace house you know chat for a little bit then annie will distract Lindsay so that they can sneak upstairs to the bedroom and fool around and he's like oh so you mean when i get in there i start ripping off your clothes (laughs) and she's like oh my god bob stop so they get out of the car And Bob carries her bridal style all the way into the house, which is empty. Mm. The lights are off and they're like, oh, no one's here. So they pretty much like instantly start making out on the couch. Yeah. They're like, Annie must have gone to see her boyfriend. So whatever. So ah. nothing's wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then the camera slowly pulls out to reveal Michael just standing and watching crazy back at the doyle house they're having family fun Lori has finally finished carving the jack-o'-lantern and they put a candle in it and that's when Lori notices bob's van outside the wallace house and he's like and Lori's like damn everyone's having a good night tonight except me mm. and she goes back to the couch to watch the rest of the movie with the kids but then the phone rings it's Linda calling, asking Lori if Annie is around. And Lori is surprised to hear that she's not back from picking up Paul yet. But she's like, oh, maybe they stopped over on the side of the road or something. And asks Linda to get her to call her when she gets back so she knows what time to put Lindsay to bed. I mean, I used to be a, a nanny, a babysitter in my day. And I like would I could never imagine like having someone over while I was babysitting. Oh, it's so not allowed. Yeah. I'm like, first of all, irresponsible. Second of all, inappropriate. Third of all, are you not afraid of getting caught? Yeah. I mean, Annie sure isn't. Yeah. So we go back to Linda and Bob. They are thrilled to hear that Lindsay is gone for the night. And I'm like, but the parents are coming back at some point. (laughs) Right. But they head right up to the bedroom They're in bed together and like Bob is having a hard time getting things going because the phone keeps ringing and distracting him, but they can't answer the phone in case like it's the Wallace's calling and like they don't want to get Annie in trouble. So Bob actually takes the phone off the hook. They go back to having sex and while they're doing the deed, who comes into the room to watch them, but Michael Myers, of course. So he just stands there watching them for a while. And after Linda and Bob finish, she lights some cigarettes for them. They lay in bed together and she asks him to like go get her a beer. So he gets out Mm -hmm. of bed and he's like, don't get dressed while I'm gone. Yeah. So Bob goes down to the kitchen and grabs some beers from the fridge. And he notices that the side door is open and he calls out to Annie and Paul before closing the door himself. Then he checks the pantry, expecting it to be someone waiting to scare him. He checks the other closet, 
But out comes Michael, who just <gasps> grabs him by the throat. There's not even a chance to scream and pins him against the wall, raising him off the ground and then stabbing him and just pinning his body to the door. Jesus. And that kind of took me out of it because I was like, that knife isn't heavy enough. Like the, Yeah, it was the, like that, that knife isn't long enough to pierce both his body and the door enough to hold him up. Right. I was yeah. like, that kind of took me out of it. Same. But it's definitely like horrible. Mm-hmm. And especially because the way that the scene is lit, like the lights are all off. Mm-hmm. And so the only light is coming from outside through the windows from like the this like back kitchen door. Yeah. Um, so it's mostly their silhouettes that they see. And there's this really creepy moment at the end where we see Michael just like slowly cock his head to each side, yeah. like looking at Bob's hanging corpse. It almost feels like the only way he can interact with humans or understand them is through murder. Yeah. Like he's he's such a voyeur that like, yeah, his only way to, to be involved is is this. And it also like really heightens the the fear factor of this scene as like while Bob is looking around the kitchen, as he gets closer and closer to that closet door, we hear Michael's breathing become louder. Super spooky. Meanwhile, upstairs, Linda is filing her nails when the bedroom door swings open and it's Michael with a sheet like over his head and um, Bob's glasses on as like a disguise. He's just standing there staring at her. And Linda, of course, thinks that it's Bob. So she sits up and like exposes her chest and she's like, oh, do you see anything that you like? Mm -hmm. And Michael just stands there and doesn't say anything because he does not speak. And Linda tries to like get any sort of reaction out of him, but there's just nothing. So she's like, okay, come on. Like, where's my beer? Why won't you answer me? And Michael just stands there with his heavy breathing. Uh, And Linda throws her shirt on and she's like, okay, whatever. I'm going to call Lori and see where Paul and Annie are. So she calls. Lori answers the phone as Michael is walking up behind Linda. And before she can even say anything to Lori, Michael starts strangling her with the telephone cord. And so all Lori can hear is like somebody like choking and gasping for air and like crying out. And she thinks that it's Annie pranking her. She's like, oh, I heard you're chewing earlier. Now I have to hear your screams like good one. Little does she know she's hearing her friend being strangled to death. Absolutely horrifying. So Linda dies. Michael like drops her body to the ground and he holds the phone up to his ear, hearing Lori just say, Annie, Annie, are you there? But there's nothing on the other end of the line. So Lori hangs up and she looks across the street to the Wallace house and sees the lights go on downstairs, like on the main floor. So she calls again, looks back to the house, all the lights are off again, and nobody answers. So Lori goes upstairs to check on Tommy and Lindsay, who are sound asleep. Yes. In the Myers house, Loomis is still waiting in the bushes, when he suddenly notices the car Michael stole from him parked down the street. 
and he runs over to it, but there's no one around. Oh my God. It's heating up. Mm -hmm. Like we're at this point in the last like what? 15, 20 minutes of the movie? Like maybe less. Yeah. So Lori goes back downstairs. She pulls a pair of keys out of her knitting bag and goes out onto the front porch and starts walking across the street toward the Wallace house. She rings the doorbell and knocks on the door and calls out for Bob and Linda. No one is answering her. So she walks around the side of the house and sees the open side door leading to the kitchen. She decides to go inside, and she's about to open the closet door when she hears sounds coming from the other room. So she hears a door creak upstairs and yells to her friends that the joke's over, but no one responds. So she slowly goes up the stairs, seeing the light is on in the bedroom, and opens the door to see Annie splayed out on the bed in front of Judith Myers' headstone and a jack-o'-lantern on the nightstand. Just like a weird shrine. Mm -hmm. So obviously seeing this, like her friend's lifeless body, she's in shock. She staggers backwards and this cabinet opens up with Bob's body hanging upside down and it just like swoops out. He's like rocking back and forth. Then the other closet door swings open to reveal Linda's body stuffed in there. And it's horrifying. And she runs into the hall, just freaking out and leaning against the wall. She's like stunned. Mm -hmm. She, She can't even like fully like make sense of it to get, herself out of there yeah and of course michael looming in the shadows on the side oh my gosh i really love the kind of like um two times that they use this this device in different ways so like right before this when she after she sees annie's body and she staggers back and we see that like dark like open doorway behind her and there's like mm-hmm. a very sudden thing when Bob's body like swings out and that's like a jump right. scare moment. And then in this point where she's again standing next to a blackened like open doorway, but instead of having another jump scare, Michael's face just like slowly comes into the light and it's yeah. so unsettling. Great framing. Mm-hmm. Michael comes out of this doorway and tries to stab Lori, but gets her sleeve and just grazes her arm with a knife. And she is so startled that she falls over the banister and down the stairs, which actually ends up being a good thing because she's as far as what, because she's as far away from him as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she runs to the front door, but it's locked. And Michael just slowly but steadily starts making his way down the stairs toward Lori. And she runs into the kitchen and locks that door. But Michael, he used a rake to block the side door. So it's completely shut. Like there's just no way to to jam that open. And when he gets to the kitchen door, he punches his way through it, breaking the door and, you know, putting his hand through to unlock it on the other side. And when he comes inside, Lori just has to break the glass 
on the doors, knock over the rake, and finally she's able to get out. Even though she's like, it doesn't seem like she's necessarily bleeding from her arm. Like it doesn't look like an awful wound, mm-hmm. but she has hurt her leg. Yeah. So she's like limping at this point. Yeah. This is actually kind of the most blood that we see in the whole movie because with Bob, Linda, and Annie's murders, we don't see any blood really at all. We see like a little bit of blood in Judith's murder, but at this point we see um, Annie's hand is bleeding from the from when she punched the glass. And that's kind of the most blood that we see with the exception of like what's about to happen when we see some blood on something else, not actually right, like right, coming right. out of a person. So we don't really see much blood actively being spilled throughout this movie. Which honestly I prefer. Like I'm really not into the super gory stuff. Like yeah. that's not scary to me. It's just gross and like doesn't really – do anything for me i know some people like that kind of that brand of horror i'm much more interested in something like this like a thriller or a slasher that really builds tension because that's what's actually scary to me i think you should watch um texas chainsaw massacre there's there is gore in that one but i think the way the movie is made that you would really enjoy it Mm. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to look into it. The the title implies a lot of gore to me. <laughs> I don't just cuz like a massacre and like a I know the kind of damage right. that a chainsaw can do. I don't so the thing is like maybe there is gore but like I don't remember it for the gore. Mm-hmm. I remember it for the way it was like directed and okay. it was like there is a lot of yeah, moments of like tension and mm-hmm. like spooky like what's gonna happen next yeah because like for example the saw movies don't interest me in the slightest yeah i could see that like the first one has a really good plot mm. but it is very very yeah graphic yeah um but before i lose my train of thought we go back to Lori. <laughs> yes. She runs outside screaming for help, limping from her injuries. Because let us not forget, she just fell to a you know a very f- far distance from the second floor to the first down some stairs. So she's limping. She runs to the neighbors and she like bangs on their door screaming for help to be let in. And the neighbors like turn on their lights and look through the shutters at her. And they're like, no. And they turn the lights back off and they close their shutters and do not let her in. I guess they probably think she's like a teen playing a prank. But if she was, the fucking Oscar-worthy performance because she sounds terrified. Right, right. She's like, please help me. Yeah. And they let – blinds closed. They're like, We're no. closed for the night. At least call 911. Yeah. Like if you're not going to come out and help, at least call 911. Mm-hmm. So she then runs back to the Wallace house and she's at the door. She's fishing around in her super tight jeans, those high, high, high waisted jeans, looking for the, the keys. Highest. She can't find the keys anywhere. They probably fell out of those in her pockets. Cute jeans. Ugh. I, I like literally was the only thing I was focusing on in this moment. I was like, those pants are so cute. Um, and I'm like, the pockets are so high. Yeah. <laughs> How did you lose the keys? So Michael is just slowly walking across the street, making his way to her, and she's banging on the door, yelling for Tommy. Downtown. 
Walking yeah. fast. Walking Vegas slow. Is fast. <laughs> so she's yelling Tommy's name. She ends up like throwing a plant up at the window to wake him up. He thinks. Thank- good arm. Yeah. Good arm. Yeah. I would miss for sure. <laughs> it's same. Yeah. She hits like right perfectly. Like the window doesn't break. It's just like in the corner. Mm-hmm. So he wakes up. She's like, Tommy, let me in. So he slowly, you know, rubs the sleep from his eyes and makes yeah, his way down I'm the like, stairs. Make haste. Make. <laughs> this is why I can't stand children. <laughs> They're so goddamn slow when they wake up in the middle of the night to a pot smashing outside their window. <laughs> exactly. I saw this insane TikTok where this mom was like, stuck she got locked out of the house or something like Mm -hmm. her husband had the key or or, i don't know there was some sort of like thing and so it was winter time though Mm -hmm. and she was with her like small child and i guess one of the windows was unlocked a little bit so she was able to like lift him up to get into the window Mm -hmm. and then she had to instruct this child to like unlock the door mm-hmm. and to bring like a chair over to the door and to get on the chair and unlock the door. And he got distracted so oh many times and it was just like taking so long. And I remember watching it. I might've watched it even a couple times cause I was like, I would be so mad. And she was keeping mm-hmm. her calm very well mm-hmm. and was like happy that he unlocked it, which of course, but I was like, I would, I feel like my father would be infuriated, <laughs> infuriated. Yeah. And I'm like, this is why I can't be a parent because <laughs> I would not have kept my cool for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, he finally makes his way down. Like, literally, Michael is on her goddamn tail, but he opens the door just in time before Michael gets to her. So she screams at Tommy to, like, go upstairs and lock him and Lindsay in the bedroom. He's, of course, like, scared, but there's no time. Can't explain the implications yeah. of this to the child. Just right. go get out of there. So he runs upstairs. Lori turns off the lights. And I'm like, well, that's pointless. He knows you're in there already, but whatever. She then picks up the phone <laughs> to call for help, but the line is dead. Uh, she then notices. I hate when they cut the line. They, all, they love to be cutting those phone lines, don't they? Mm-hmm. So she then notices there's an open window because, like, the curtain is blowing in the wind. And instead of closing it, she just, like, crouches by the couch and reaches into her knitting bag, Chekhov's knitting bag. <laughs> and <laughs> that's good. She's sitting by the couch, but it's too late because Michael's already in the house. He's already in the house. Fuck. So he jumps up from behind the couch. He tries to stab Lori. His aim is not looking too good. Two for two. He misses, stabs that knife directly into the couch. And she quickly picks up Chekhov's knitting needle and she stabs him in the neck with it. In the neck. Mm -hmm. The reflexes. Yeah. She's got aim. That's for sure. So he staggers back and like pulls out the knitting needle before he collapses. And this is the other time we see blood. Like we see blood on the knitting needle itself. So Lori then pulls Michael's knife out of the couch and like peeks over at him laying on the ground. She she must assume that he's dead 
because she then just kind of like sits on the couch and throws. I need her to not do that. Though that pissed me off. What so what pissed much. me off is the amount of time she has this knife in her hand and she just like throws it. She throws it away. I'm like, Lauren. She's like, I can't stand it. I can't stand this knife in my hand. Yeah. She just tosses that knife on the ground and I want to scream into the void. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> Meanwhile, Loomis is walking down the street on his one man search for Michael Myers. When the sheriff drives up to Loomis, fills him in on the car discovery and they split up. To cover more ground, just Loomis. Uh, <laughs> do you do you want to say this since it's your note? No, you you can say it. <laughs> Move at a glacial pace, Loomis. You know how that thrills me. <laughs> he was walking so slow. He was like, he must be on this block. Like you, you cover the streets. I'll look at the backyards, and then he's just like. Slowly strolling down the street in his trench you know coat. What they and I'm say, like, you gotta stop to smell the roses. I'm like, nobody is moving with urgency. Not even Michael Myers, but like somebody needs to move with urgency. Please. Please. <sighs> so Lori is still reeling from this interaction. She's dragged herself off the couch and runs upstairs to check on the kids and tells them there's nothing to be scared of because she killed the boogeyman. Lori, and Tommy says, you're smart. You know that that didn't kill him. Right. And you should stop throwing away the knife. Mm-hmm. And Tommy says, you can't kill the boogeyman. And just like that, Michael is at the top of the staircase with his knife in hand. Lori shoves the kids in the bathroom and tells them to lock the door. Best babysitter, honestly. Mm-hmm. And she runs into the bedroom and opens the balcony as a diversion before running to hide in the closet and inside, like tying um, the doorknobs closed. Michael comes into the bedroom and Lori watches as his shadow crosses from inside. I thought that was such a great detail. And then he just starts rattling the shutters of this closet, which is like, it's like paper thin. And he's just rattling them and rattling them. And then he bursts his way through and Lori arms herself with a hanger and unwinds it. And he's just like, punching and like clawing and like getting just breaking through this door like he can absolutely at this point just reach in and stab her or even like take the door off its hinges Mm -hmm. but he's just like smashing it one by one just like there's almost something uh, like robotic about it like it doesn't feel human well I almost feel like because like, he's just not an, 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 oh my goodness, he's not an adult. Like, he's stuck mm-hmm. as a child, and children don't always do things in a logical way. Yeah. So, for him, he's just like smash, smash, smash. It doesn't occur to plan or do something. Like, he just is following by rote. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, he like has taken off enough of this door that he busts his way through and tries to grab her and Lori stabs him in the eye with a hanger. And I'm like, I couldn't have made that. I 
could not have had that aim. Yeah. In this predicament, <laughs> catch me not making that. Oh, I would have been long dead mm-hmm. in this predicament. So with this new eye wound, he drops the knife. <laughs> He's been um, stabbed in the neck. He's been mm-hmm. stabbed in the eye. Mm-hmm. That doesn't deter him. No. And so Lori picks up that knife, which she never should have dropped in the first place, and stabs him with it. So Michael collapses. I can't even stand what you're about to say next. So she holds the knife up as she, like, gets up to get a look at his body on the ground. She carefully, like, steps out of the closet around him. And what does she do? What does Lori Strode do? She throws that knife once Bam. again. <laughs> but who needs it? Not who me. Who needs it? <laughs> she said, I don't keep that motherfucking thing on me, actually. I want it as far away from me as possible. She's like, I can't stand it. Boom. Mm-hmm. Throw it out. Throw it away. Yeah, so she tosses why, that why knife. Why not just hand it back to him? Thanks for letting me borrow this. <laughs> she throws the knife. She limps out of the bedroom. She gets Tommy to unlock the door and tells the kids, like, she gives them a hug. And she tells the kids to go downstairs to the Mackenzie's house and tell them to call the police and send them here. Mm-hmm. So the kids go down the stairs and Lori, insane choice, sits with her back to the bedroom. Like her back is to Michael. So we have this wide shot where we see Lori like leaning against the doorframe. And then, of course, in the background, the creepiest thing you've ever seen, Michael rises up once again. In an L shape, like like just mm-hmm. <sighs> horrifying. The kids run out of the house screaming, and Loomis sees them. So he's like, oh, must be in there. So he heads into the Wallace house. Lori, like, stands up, and at the same time, so does Michael. He starts walking towards her as she's walking down the hallway, and then he grabs her and tries to strangle her. They're caught in a struggle Loomis runs up the stairs and Lori actually pulls Michael's mask off and it reveals his face for the first time. And we see the eye that she stabbed. It's all like fucked up. And this is when you kind of remember like just how young Michael is. He's like 21. Yeah, he's in his 20s. Yeah. Because he would have been six when he was arrested. This is 15 years later. So... Michael then actually, like, puts his mask back on. Um, Like, he can't stand to have it off at all. And, like, this also goes back to that first scene that we see where he, like, murders his sister wearing the clown mask. So it's Mm -hmm. clearly, like, some sort of shield mechanism, whatever it may be for him. So he puts the mask back on and Loomis shoots him. So Michael falls backwards into the bedroom and Loomis runs over. But when he gets into the bedroom, Michael is, like, standing perfectly still, like nothing even happened. So Loomis shoots him four more times, and Michael ends up, like, falling off the balcony to the ground below. So Loomis goes back into the hallway to check on Lori, and in tears, she says, It was the boogeyman. And Loomis says, As a matter of fact, it was. Loomis, stop with theatrics. For a moment. The woman is terrified. This girl is traumatized. So he goes to the balcony and looks down at the ground. And Michael is gone. Damn it. 
damn you, he's the unkillable killer. So Loomis is shocked. Lori sobs. And then to end the film, we just hear Michael's heavy breathing as we see the interiors of the Doyle and the Wallace houses, the various places he was lurking in the shadows. And our final shot is a slow zoom on the Myers house as we just hear Michael's breath getting louder and louder. And then the title card, Halloween. My goodness. So what'd you the think? The drama. <laughs> what did I think? The drama. The gravitas. Mm-hmm. The never knowing. Yeah. I really enjoyed the slow, drawn-out nature of the film. Mm-hmm. And... I think that the low production value really suits it. It's very like slice of life. Yeah. It feels like it could be any suburban town. Um, but Michael is just this unfallible killer who, mm-hmm. yeah, has this childlike way about him. He's totally detached. Um, But yeah, thinking about this movie through the lens of the coming of age aspect, Mm -hmm. it is interesting that she, there are these, you know, moments of her being this unsure teenager, but also contrasting that when it comes down to life or death, she's in complete control and she actually does very well under pressure. She's the only one who's able to defend herself even Mm -hmm. um, because everyone else is so blasé and so like undeterred and has this, which is like such a teenage thing to feel like you're indestructible and you can live forever. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't have that way about her. Um, And she's very like thoughtful and, uh, I don't know, like swift to react. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that the only like two characters that ever really take notice of or have any sort of suspicions about Michael, about like seeing this figure are Lori and Tommy who Mm -hmm. have like similar character traits where they're both like incredibly kind, but also like they have a lot of their own fears Um, Like Tommy is afraid of like standing up to his bullies and Laurie is afraid of maybe like getting into trouble or taking risks. Like they both have a a healthy dose of fear in them and they're the only ones who really notice this like dark presence in the neighborhood. And I think also setting this story in like a suburb, which is supposed to be like a very safe place, a family oriented place where Mm -hmm. like, People, if they maybe were in the city, they decide to move to the suburbs to raise their children because it's considered like one of the better options or just like a safer environment to then mm-hmm. have this evil, malignant presence lurking in it. thought that juxtaposition was great. It like really heightened just how scary Michael is. Like he represents all evil and death and um just all like the the dangers of the world really um and it just kind of goes to show that like nowhere is safe which is a really another really scary thought mm-hmm. um so i liked that we had that setting for that to really drive that point home 
And yeah, just the the slow, slow pace of it, I think really serves it. So then when the the climax hits like towards the end of the movie and we have this incredibly fast pace, everything feels like super earned and you're really affected by the murders when they happen because there's been yeah. so much build up to it. Absolutely. Like I can and I can't imagine them writing it in 10 days because it does feel really well thought out, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not a dialogue heavy movie. It's not like the, the most speech is Loomis mm-hmm. thinking about Michael and, and expressing his behaviors, but there isn't, even Laurie doesn't really have like a speech or anything, but mm-hmm. there's so much in the undercurrent of the film. And I really enjoyed the characterization of the teenagers. I thought yeah. it was so like realistic and it felt like something that people would actually be doing on a Halloween night and mm-hmm. sneaking around and like babysitting and like hooking up with your boyfriend. Um, but there's like this sinister undercurrent that no one expects. Like why now? Why is Michael back now? Yeah. And like I I love that this movie really takes its time with a lot of the shots. Like we have some really, really incredibly framed shots. And one that like really sticks out to me is the moment when Lori is crossing the street from the Doyle house to the Wallace house for the first time. And it's a very long sequence. Like I think she's walking for like at least a minute, which is a long time for just like somebody walking across the street, right? But we keep cutting back and forth to like shots of her and shots of the house, which is definitely like a Hitchcock reference. He used to do that a lot in his movies where we would cut back and forth between somebody walking up to like a setting. Um, So that was also like a nice parallel having Jamie Lee Curtis, obviously in relation to like Hitchcock, but it like really cements that like this is a big moment Lori is now crossing into like the realm of danger like she Mm -hmm. is now in the line she's in like michael's line of of danger when she crosses over to that house and we see her getting like further and further away from us as well the viewers so like i thought that that sequence was really cool so it's just these really understated things like that that serve the movie so much better than any sort of big budget could. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure that having the houses across the street from each other was also like, it's not like they were shooting on locations in different Mm -hmm. places, but I loved having the houses across the street because it was like, you know, the killer isn't getting in a car and like Mm -hmm. traveling. It was, and then you can also see here is the point of view from inside their mm-hmm. house, like the the Doyle house versus the Wallace house and like vice versa and cutting back and forth or even seeing the lights go on and off from one house mm-hmm. in the other house. Um, yeah, I just thought it was a great way to make the landscape. Yeah. So we could always keep eyes on like what was going on. Yeah, it keeps everything so contained, mm-hmm. um, which – again, like heightens that the danger is like literally all around you. There's no other setting than like this one setting where everything is happening. Um, yeah. And just like so many of the, the ways that they frame shots 
heightened like they really highlighted how much of a voyeur Michael is but also made us voyeurs as well yeah so spooky yeah well so what would you like to rate this one I think I'll give it a solid eight I liked it I liked a lot more than I thought I would actually yeah because it was was it like a first time viewing for you you'd seen like bits and pieces before I have seen it before but there was a lot that I like didn't remember. Mm-hmm. So I think I saw it like probably when I was younger, honestly. But mm-hmm. um Jamie Lee Curtis was awesome. Like mm-hmm. great casting. She is usually cast, especially now, as this like really strong woman who is usually like really flippant or I'm thinking of her appearance in the bear and she's like cursing and Mm -hmm. she is like or even everything everywhere all at once yeah she's like a tough cookie even like in freaky friday when she's yeah both and when she's um anna Mm -hmm. both very bold characters yeah so it was interesting to see her younger and very like soft around the edges and like unsure of herself because in her characters she's usually very very sure of herself and very confident yeah and because they took so much of the so much time for like the first half of the movie just showing Mm -hmm. us like Lori's life and bits about her personality she felt like quite three-dimensional to me so it was really easy to be invested in her because they took the time to do that yeah absolutely so yeah also getting an eight from me very solid. It feels like the perfect way to like start off the season, but also mm. a good way to end the season as well if you want to save it for, you know, the the highest of spooky times on Halloween night. But yeah, this felt like a really nice way to kick off the month. Absolutely. And if you loved this, there are going to be more spooky movies in store for you. We got some really yeah. sinister ones picked out. So yeah, some twisted Sick and twisted. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I'm sick and twisted. Just call me the Joker. <laughs> I don't fit in. I don't want to fit in. <laughs> We're all we all go a little mad sometimes. Mm. <laughs> oh, no. oh man. Well, if you want some more content from us, you can always follow us on Instagram. It's movies that raised us. You can follow us on Twitter at mtru underscore pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Movies That Raised Us Pod. And you can also send us a good old fashioned email at Movies That Raised Us at gmail.com. And we will see you next week for the next installment of Spooktober. I'm Mo. And I'm Christina. And our theme song is by Garrett Schmidt. Bye. Bye.